1: The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC.
4: You're listening to the second season of Breakdown, an exclusive podcast by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This season, death in a hot car, mistake or murder. Go to AJCBreakdown.com for additional background, photos, video, and more on the Justin Ross Harris case.
1: Previously on Breakdown. I had a jury out
2: for a number of days, and one juror got mad at another juror and knocked him out with one blow. We had a mistrial in that case. (laughs) You think Ross's ex-wife and her best friend, Angie, you think they're going to come in here and testify for Ross? If for one second, they didn't mean exactly what they said, that Ross loved that child more than anything, you think they would've ever come in here for him? Listen, Ross ruined that woman's life. He humiliated her in front of the world. He took her son away. You think, you really think she's gonna come in here and her best friend's gonna come in here and say anything about how much Ross loved this little boy if they didn't know that this was an accident.
5: We're, we're all tired, but the thing is, when you're thinking about how tired you are of all that language and all that, as they said, filth, what we say is his other life, this other side, this mm-hmm. other dark side, hey, those are his words. That's what's in his mind. That is the other Justin Ross Harris. Does your conscience ever kick in? And what does that defendant say? Nope. And we know for a fact that he showed that lack of conscience on June 18th, 2014. He showed exactly who he is.
1: Okay, I'm sure you know by now we finally got a verdict in the state of Georgia versus Justin Ross Harris. It was delivered November 14th. That's almost two years and five months after Harris pulled his dead son Cooper out of his SUV under a hot Georgia sun. I'm Bill Rankin of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I've covered courts for more than 25 years. And even now, Every single time I hear the words, we have a verdict, my pulse quickens. There's nothing really like it, especially in a criminal case where the stakes are so high. Justice for a victim, the loss of liberty for a defendant. In the Harris case, deliberations had spilled into their fourth day. The jurors had occasionally sent interesting questions back to the court, and the press took those as signs of the direction the jury was taking. You know, If they've taken a long time and asked a lot of questions, surely they're hung up on something important. Maybe they'll reach some compromise. Find him guilty of some charges, not guilty on others. Little did we know. And anyway, seasoned attorneys and aging legal affairs writers can tell you this. Nobody really has any idea what the jury's going to do until the jurors file back into the courtroom and do it. So on day four, I watched out a back window as nearly half the jury went outside for a smoke during the mid-afternoon break. This time, they all seemed fairly relaxed, which made me think of one thing and one thing only. They must be close. Hey, full disclosure, that's what I was thinking at that moment. When the jury first got the case, I predicted it'd come back in two days. Of course, what I meant to say was four days. Less than an hour later, after that afternoon break, I heard the words. We have a verdict. They were uttered by frantic Fox 5 News reporter Angelique Proctor as she rushed into the media room.
4: Ladies and gentlemen, the jury has knocked on their door and announced that they have a verdict. Before I bring them in, I want to remind everyone of the conduct requirements, although I really think this is not necessary with this group. But remember, the jury is entitled to their verdict and it is entitled to respect.
0: That's all right for the jury, please.
1: In a court of law, you always rise for the judge. But in Glenn County, you also rise for the jury. This time, it seemed like it took forever for jurors to finally take their seats. Actually, it was just over two minutes. Please be seated. Members of the jury, it's good to see you
4: again. My understanding is that the jury has arrived at a verdict.
1: Judge Mary Staley Clark then told the foreman to hand up the verdict form so she could inspect it.
4: The verdict is in proper form to be received by the court. At this time, I'm going to ask the clerk to publish the verdict. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Phillips.
2: In the Superior Court of uh, County, State of Georgia, State of Georgia versus Justin Ross Harris, defendant, case number 1493124, verdict form. We the jury find as follows: Count one, malice murder. As to count one, we find we find the defendant
6: guilty. This 14th day of November, 2016,
2: I only four person. Count two, felony murder. As to count two, we find the defendant guilty. Count three, felony murder. As to count three, we find the
1: defendant guilty. And so it went. They found Harris guilty of all eight counts. Guilty of three murder charges, including one for intentionally killing his son, two counts of cruelty to children, three others for sexting with a 15 year old girl. Harris is to be sentenced December 5th back in Cobb County, where the case began. He's facing one of two bad choices life in prison with the possibility of parole, or life without a chance of parole. In an interview the morning after the verdict, lead prosecutor Chuck Boring was asked what he thought the appropriate sentence would be. He didn't directly answer it. Instead, he said this.
5: What do you do when you've got somebody that's been proven guilty of intentionally cooking a child in the car?
1: Yes, I expect Harris will get life without parole. Unless he can get his conviction thrown out on appeal, it's very likely he never sets foot in the free world again. As is typical in high-profile cases, The prosecution and the defense held press conferences following the verdict. After meeting with the jurors, the prosecution team emerged from the courthouse. Cobb County District Attorney Vic Reynolds spoke first. He didn't try the case, but he signed off on the indictment.
0: I will tell you that today is is not a day we consider a victory. It's not a verdict that we celebrate. In fact, today is a monumentally sad day. It's the culmination of a 29-month journey that ended with the guilty verdicts that the jury returned today. When this case began some two and a half years ago, uh, our goal was singular in nature, and that was to seek justice on behalf of young Cooper Harris, and we believe categorically, unequivocally, that justice was served today. Absolutely.
1: As I've said, the jury was out four days, and on three occasions, it asked to see video recordings Harris's interview with lead detective Phil Stoddard at police headquarters, Harris's meeting with his then wife, Leanna, shortly thereafter and Harris returning to his SUV at lunchtime, the day of Cooper's death. Didn't this mean the jury had to be at odds over something? But driving back to Brunswick the day before, I remembered covering the sensational federal trial of a politically connected Atlanta lawyer, Fred Tokars. Tokars, prosecutors said, had his wife killed because she wanted a divorce, and she was threatening to expose his illicit lifestyle. The trial was moved to Birmingham because of all the pretrial publicity. That jury was out six days, and as deliberations stretched on, we all thought the prosecution's case might be in trouble. But when that jury came back, it found Tokars guilty of all eight counts against him. So Monday, as I sat waiting on the Harris jury, I knew it was useless to start thinking it was going to go one way or the other. Later, at the press conference, Lead Prosecutor Chuck Boring disclosed something that truly surprised me. He relayed what he'd just learned while talking to jurors.
5: We did speak with them. The, the feedback, I mean, they were very diligent. And uh, speaking with them, they were uh, almost uh, uh, unanimous early on. Um, but they thought there was a, a duty they had to go through all the evidence and make sure that they weren't missing anything. So I, I really had to tip my hat to these jurors. They were honestly just amazing.
1: Almost unanimous right off the bat? Wow. I never expected that." The jurors also told the prosecution there wasn't one single piece of evidence that led them to find Harris guilty. It wasn't just one thing,
5: and speaking with the jurors, it was, you know, the, just everything. You look at one thing, maybe that could be excusable. But then you look at this part and this part and this part, and the only thing that makes sense was his guilt. The entirety of it. You know, honestly, going through every little bit of it, it wasn't one thing that they said, this proves malice it was everything
1: boring said it took a while for cobb prosecutors to come to grips with the idea that cooper's killing was intentional
5: after going through all the evidence and one by one kind of as the investigation did it was we thought initially maybe this was a negligent homicide and then the actual facts the evidence stared us in the face and stared the detectives in the
0: face and you couldn't ignore it
1: reynolds the da agreed
0: so mm-hmm. i will tell you that in this case literally from the very beginning the Cobb pd when they reached out to us said something is not right about this case mm-hmm. there's something wrong about this case uh and we didn't go into the case hoping that it would be a malice murder didn't go into the case hoping that it would be anything but some god-awful tragic accident but the but, but as chuck said as brick by brick by brick by brick started laying in front of us the foundation was built to proceed on with malice murder. And I will tell you, from the literally from the very second, the very minute, those uh, detectives were there, they indicated to mm-hmm. us that there was something not right about this case.
1: Boring, who heads Cobb's Special Victims Unit, was asked if this case meant more to him than others.
5: It did, probably just because of the extent of, you know, the depravity of what we saw and how somebody could be capable. And you have to accept that somebody's capable of this level of evil. And we see it, and you know, as far as we're jaded, we know that this is possible, but seeing it to this level, doing that to another human being, you know, even for the people like us, you know, Mr. Reynolds, Mr. Tr- uh, Evans, Ms. Treadway, see, you know, cases involving you know, death all the time and horrible things, even this was just it, t- it really affected everybody.
1: Boring added.
5: And I think this is one of those occasions where obviously the actions speak louder than words in this case, and anybody who could do this, and the evidence showed that he did this intentionally, he has malice in his heart, absolutely. So oftentimes with these cases we deal with, if it's somebody in a position of responsibility, somebody um, in a religious organization, something like that, that everybody in the world thinks is this great person, oftentimes we find those are the people that take advantage of the most vulnerable. And I think this case kind of screams
1: that. The prosecution team made its comments on the lawn just outside the Glen County Courthouse. Giant live oaks draped with Spanish moss served as a fitting Golden Isles backdrop. The prosecutors were followed by Harris's lawyers, Maddox Kilgore, Carlos Rodriguez, and Brian Lumpkin. Kilgore walked up to the mic and said he had a brief statement and would take no questions. He began by saying he felt so lucky to be a part of the greatest criminal justice system in the world. But sometimes there are breakdowns in the system.
2: And when an innocent person is convicted, there's been, um, there's been some breakdowns in the system, and that's what happened here. Over the next couple of uh, months and years, we're gonna work toward um, getting to the bottom of some of those breakdowns.
1: Just moments earlier, Boring had insisted the evidence screamed out that Harris was a depraved man who, with a malicious heart, killed his only child. Kilgore said that was not true at all. But on a
2: more personal level, um, I'll tell you that uh, from the moment we met Ross Harris, um, we've never once, ever, once wavered in our absolute belief that he's not guilty of what he's just been convicted of. Each time I take a new person over to the jail, a new lawyer, an investigator, and we walk out of the jail and inevitably they turn their head to
1: me and say, my God, he's really not guilty because he's not. The next day, after the dust of the verdict is settled, my AJC colleague Christian Boone and I had the good fortune to sit down with both sides. We met Boring at a local restaurant and sat outside on the patio. This helps explain some of the background noise you'll hear during the course of our interview. Throughout the trial, Boring held an unwavering conviction that there was no doubt Harris meant to kill his son. So I asked him if he ever had any second thoughts about malice.
5: Yeah, I would say, yeah, early on first couple of weeks into it, as the investigation was going, you know, everything at every turn we got to, it it was showing us malice. But, you, I mean, even in our world, you don't want to believe somebody's capable of this. And I'll tell you, the police, that's the last thing they wanted is this investigation to turn out the way it did as far as this being something intentionally done. It would have been a much easier um, avenue to take for us to chalk this up as some type of negligence or some type of accident. It would have been easier on everybody and we could have gone home and not had to deal with it ever again now here we are in brunswick uh, two and a half years later so i mean it, it was one of those things where you just can't ignore the evidence
1: boring declined to address the defense team's equally steadfast belief that harris is innocent
5: honestly you know i, I can't get in their heads to know if they truly think that if they're advocating for their client you know i don't want to go down that road.
1: Boring couldn't resist making reference to the choice words Kilgore used at his press conference the previous afternoon.
5: Oh, it was interesting he used the term breakdown several times. I was like, oh, oh that, that's convenient. <laughs>
1: that's a ranking move right there. Boring was just kidding, I think. And yes, we do always appreciate the breakdown references. But for the record, I had nothing to do with that. Nothing. I asked Boring, what was your biggest challenge coming into the trial?
5: I think the biggest challenge and honestly the biggest challenge in this case um, was not so much proving up the facts of the case. It was getting over, I think, preconceived notions that a jury would have that people just don't want to believe that human beings are capable of this type of evil. Um, I think that all in all, people go about their normal days. They don't see the stuff like you see every day, we see in our jobs. They don't have a window into that world. And so uh, I think that was one of the biggest hurdles we had coming up, we were looking at, is convincing people that he is capable of this. I mean, The evidence is there, it's just people just don't want to believe that somebody could do this type of thing.
1: As for what motivated Harris?
5: I think he's a narcissist, absolutely. I think he was motivated by his own selfish needs. He's also motivated by uh, people's perceptions. And in some sick way, I really think that he thought he was also going to get attention from this as well, like positive attention. Um, He looked for a way that he wouldn't end up being the, quote, bad guy, so to speak. Um, I'm not saying it was a good plan, (laughs) obviously, but uh, I I think that he saw it that morning and he just decided, you know what, this is what I'm going to do. And I think that he, he was motivated because I think he really, that had become the most important part of his life. And so I think that surpassed everything else.
1: One of the first things Harris told Leanna at police headquarters was that he didn't leave Cooper in the car on purpose. This was significant, Boring said.
5: He was very concerned with the issue of people thinking he did this on purpose. And who in their right mind would ever think that somebody would think they did it on purpose? Nobody. And so that I think that was
1: telling, too. So was the videotaped interview of Harris with Detective Stoddard, Boring said. Don't forget. Harris paused when he got to the point about what he did at lunchtime when he neglected to say he stopped by his car. By that time, Cooper had been trapped in the back of the SUV for three hours. But Harris claimed that he didn't see him when he opened the front door and tossed in a package of light bulbs.
5: I think that was a, it was a big thing, and you could tell just his reaction to that as opposed to when he's going through very detailed vividly, the details through the day, and he gets to that and he's like, um,
1: um... Harris's demeanor that afternoon also played a role, Boring said. He recalled the 911 call that Arkansas judge Wade Naramore made after he found his son dead in his back seat. Naramore was later acquitted at trial. We've played that 911 call in a number of episodes. I know you remember it, so we're not going to play it again.
5: Yeah, that I mean, there's almost primal. Yeah, you know, it was awful. We didn't have that at all in this case. Uh, you know, and I, I I think Detective Piper, well I guess now Detective Piper, when she described his behavior as Will Ferrell-like, I mean, it really, from talking to the witnesses at the scene and from watching those videos over and over again, is pretty accurate, you know? It wasn't like he was bawling and there was any in between. It was like a scream, a scream, and then I'm looking at the camera like, doo-doo-doo, what's going on? You know, hanging out.
1: We asked Boring what the public should think about Leanna Taylor, Harris's ex-wife. He essentially cleared her. There's no case, he said.
5: Uh, I would tell them, much like, you know, if you say in cases, you just don't go jumping to conclusions and accusing somebody of something that we don't have evidence of. And that we, there, there's no evidence in this case, you know, to charge her with anything. So... I think that's kind of where we have to leave it at this point.
1: Boring also addressed criticisms of Detective Phil Stoddard, whose testimony at the probable cause hearing has been widely criticized. This case got moved
5: up to a probable cause hearing two weeks, at least two weeks earlier than normal. Got bumped up and we found out at the last second. So whereas this would have been something he was preparing for 30 days down the road, I think some of his phrasings were clumsy because I think my questions were, were not exactly on point as much
1: because I was two weeks into the case too. We interviewed the defense lawyers where they'd been staying for two months. During the hurricane, their house flooded. Remnants of their war room with big strategy charts taped to a wall were still in view. The atmosphere here was somber. Here's Kilgore on his reaction to the verdict. We're
2: extremely surprised by the verdict. Frankly stunned. The um, guilty on malice murder and felony murder were the... It was the last scenario that we expected.
1: The defense team thought that over four weeks of testimony, they'd only had two bad days, and they felt like they were in good shape, even when the prosecution rested its case.
2: And we felt that um, not only were we in the case, uh, but we felt strongly that uh, not guilty on murder was um, likely to highly likely when the state rested. When we put up the witnesses, we did. We thought it was highly, highly likely that he was going to be found not guilty of murder. Listen, we've been doing this a long time, so uh, we understand that anything can happen. We understand that jury may not see it the way we see it, but we know about reasonable doubt. You know, we know evidence, overwhelming evidence of innocence when it's staring us in the face. I mean, those are two things that we understand and that we know. I don't I don't want to suggest that we were cocky about the outcome, but um it was our belief that if the jury had listened to the evidence and followed the judge's instructions, Ross was gonna be found not guilty of all three counts of murder. And we believe that very strongly. So we are very, very surprised and very hurt.
1: Kilgore said he doesn't talk to jurors after a trial. He left that up to his co-counsels, Carlos Rodriguez and Brian Lumpkin. Lumpkin said he was surprised by the jury's reception.
7: There was a sense of, obviously a sense of relief because they're done, but almost a frivolity of, of, there was just not that sense of the gravity of having just convicted somebody of such a horrible crime. And that's what most bothered me. Although they were complimentary of our job, um, there wasn't any discussion about how difficult it was or any indication of going back and forth. They just didn't, I got a the sense they didn't want to talk to us about the deliberations at all. There was one particular drawer who seemed by themselves and uh, seemed to be a bit bothered with it. Um, and that drawer was taken out by the bailiff. and uh, But the rest of them, just like a mix and mingle, basically. And that's, that was really bothersome for that you would hope at least there was some explanation of, gosh, this is such a hard decision.
1: Rodriguez had a similar reaction.
8: Brian and I walked in to the jury room uh, broken after spending the last hour with Ross in a holding cell. You know, tears in our eyes and seeing smiles on jurors' faces uh, was the last thing that we expected to see obviously we didn't anticipate guilty on malice and certainly were optimistic and hopeful for not guilty on the murder charges but not a single question from the jurors about a piece of evidence not a single question about a witness's testimony no one wanted to really let us know why they had reached this decision that we never thought was really possible.
1: Kilgore once again accused Cobb police of a rush to judgment. We're extremely
2: disappointed in some of the assertions and shortcomings and um, affirmatively misleading testimony from detectives in this case. That doesn't mean I'm not painting the entire department with a broad brush, but um, we're disappointed. We're disappointed.
1: Kilgore said he believed the breakdowns in the system that he'd referred to the day before affected the final verdict. He also said the defense team will continue to represent Harris on his motion for a new trial and any subsequent appeals.
2: This case is not over. We're gonna have our day before the Supreme Court of Georgia. And and hopefully at, at that juncture, Uh, Some of these breakdowns uh, will come to light um, and we'll have another chance at trial.
1: A lingering issue in the case was the police department's treatment of Leanna Taylor, Cooper's mother, and Harris's ex-wife. Police expressed suspicions about her early on, that she was in league with her husband to kill their son. Even at the very end of the case, Detective Stoddard wouldn't let go of her. He remarked on the witness stand that she had always been a suspect. Kilgore criticized Cobb police for saying Leanna was a suspect in the case and then never letting it go.
2: Cobb police department believes and continues to believe that somehow Leanna Taylor is involved in this. It's crazy. It's absolutely, completely ludicrous to think she could have any knowledge or involvement in Ross forgetting Cooper that day. It's nuts.
1: Kilgore also had this to say about Leanna.
2: But the second thing that I want to tell you about Leanne Taylor, besides being one of the strongest women I have ever met in my life. She is um, deeply, uh, deeply um, committed to her faith. She believes that when Cooper passed, that he went to a better place. She believes that to this day with all of her heart, as do we. We believe that we believe that. Um, Without question. We believe that Cooper uh, is in paradise. Her strength comes from her faith uh, in Christ. And um, her belief that one day she'll be um, reunited with um, not only with Christ, but with her son. And we believe that, too.
1: Here's Rodriguez.
8: And it's the same for Ross. And it's exactly why he said the things that he said to her in that interview. They're reaffirming to each other that they have to have faith, that they have to trust, that that accidents happen, that uh, things don't slip by, things don't slip by God, that there is a bigger purpose. We don't have to understand it. Just like, I'm not going to understand this verdict.
1: Kilgore once again repeated his assertion that the prosecution got it all wrong. We've believed
2: from the very beginning that Ross was innocent. We've had the luxury of meeting with him hours after Cooper died and being with him on a regular basis over almost two and a half years. And it's never crossed our mind for one second that this was what the state said it was. Never, it's never crossed our mind for one
1: moment that this was intentional. This belief made it extremely difficult for the defense team when it met with Harris in a holding cell shortly after the verdict.
2: We met with Ross in the back room afterwards, and he wanted to talk about Cooper and how much he missed him. He wanted to um, console us. He's a talker he didn't want us to feel bad and so he spent a lot of time telling us what a great job we had done and how we had encouraged him over the years and how uh, he was so uh, blessed and encouraged that that three men believed him and believed in him so strongly and cared for him and loved him you know moments after being found guilty of murdering his child he was worried about us He was worried about his parents. He was terrified what this was going to do to his mom and dad. He was worried about Leanna. He was worried, frankly, about everybody but himself. He told us over and over that his faith in in, in God had had held him up. He told us over and over that God had been faithful. And we... uh, We prayed, and uh, it was it was quite intense in those moments. Four grown men in prayer, in tears. It was, um, it was something I'll never forget.
1: Kilgore said Harris surprised them when he sat down at the defense table for the last time.
2: When the jury was coming in, you know, in the most terrifying moment of his life,
1: Ross was... At this point, Kilgore asked me to turn off my recorder. He wanted to give his law partner, Carlos Rodriguez, who was now sobbing, a chance to compose himself. Moments later, Kilgore motioned for me to turn the recorder back on again.
2: What I want you to know is that in those, um, in those moments when we were sitting there at the council table, when the jury was about to come in, Ross, uh, Ross was asking Carlos about his wife. Carlos's wife was in the hospital this week last week, and uh we shared that with him and um you know, just a minute before his fate is going to be announced, he's asking about Carlos's wife. It doesn't surprise any of us at all because that's that's the kind of um selfless sort of person that ross uh is. We certainly tried to demonstrate that through his family and friends. After we spent an hour with him or so after the verdict, well, after the hugs, and it was time to say goodbye. The last thing that Ross said to us was encouraging Carlos to spend time with his family and to take his daughter to church. We, um, we wanted to demonstrate, during the trial, that part of Ross. And, um, you yeah, I'm afraid that we failed. I'm afraid that we failed to, um,
1: to get that across. That was an interview I'll never forget. Marietta criminal defense attorney Ashley Merchant who closely followed the trial, said she can only imagine what the defense attorneys are going through.
3: It's crushing when you think that your client is innocent and they get convicted and you know that they're going to prison for the rest of their lives. That is that is very, very hard to deal with. And so, you know, I, I feel really bad for the lawyers because they've fought so hard.
1: Defense lawyers don't often find themselves in such a position, she said.
3: Most of the time, you got to realize, most of the time, the, the clients that we're defending at trial, most of the time did it or some version of it. So those are the cases that you're dealing with. And, you know, and this is one of those where I think that they completely believe that their client was innocent and what kind of compounds it for me as a, as a lawyer. And, and I'm sure for them is they don't think they got a fair trial. And so if you don't, it, when you go through it and you look back and you say, you know what, not only do I think he's innocent, but I also don't think he got a fair shake. I don't think the process was done. I don't think he got a fair trial. That's very troubling for a lawyer because that's what we hang our hat on. We hang our hats on, you know, the conviction was fair. The conviction was, was just whether or not, you know, he was guilty or innocent. He had a fair shot, and a jury decided it. And I don't think that, that they think that he had a fair shot.
1: Don't forget, of course, that Merchant is a criminal defense lawyer. So it's not surprising she said she was shocked that the jury found Harris guilty of malice murder. The prosecution just didn't make that case, she said. Here's her take on how people are reacting to it.
3: I think there's two different crowds. I think there's the crowds that that only heard the the early-on media and had made up their minds and didn't really pay attention to the real proof or the real facts. I think those people were out to hang him, and they're thrilled with the verdict. And then I think there's the people that actually listened to it and actually paid attention to the true
1: facts, and those folks are very shocked. We started this journey of Season 2 of Breakdown almost eight months ago. After three grueling weeks of jury selection in Marietta, we were hit with a stunning change of venue, followed by weeks of silence. Then, after the trial was moved 300 miles away to the Golden Isles, Hurricane Matthew shut it down again. A couple of weeks ago, my 97-year-old mom in Virginia asked me what would happen if there was a hung jury and the case needed to be tried all over again. Well, I love my mom with all my heart, so I gently asked her to never ask that question again. Then, we finally got the verdict. As for that guilty verdict for malice murder, it's one I'll be thinking about for years and years. There are some things about this case that I'm certain of. There was no smoking gun, no DNA, no fingerprints, no courthouse full of eyewitnesses. There was a mountain of incriminating evidence against Harris, but most all of it could be read two ways. I also know that only one person in the world knows for sure what happened on that hot June day in 2014 when an adorable 22-month-old boy was left alone for seven hours in an overheated SUV and died a horrible, horrible death. The detectives don't know. The people on the scene didn't know. The prosecutors, the defense, they don't know. And I surely don't know. The only person who knows for sure what exactly happened is Justin Ross Harris. But we didn't get to hear from him at the trial. And now, the jury has spoken. Throughout this season, I've tried to explain the intricacies of our criminal justice system through the prism of a sensational high-profile case. I've also tried to show how these unthinkable, gut-wrenching tragedies can occur, even to the best of parents. If this podcast has helped raise awareness of the dangers of leaving kids in cars, If it's prodded parents to take affirmative steps to prevent something like this from ever happening to their child? Well, that is fantastic. Look back, everybody. Look back. In Episode 1, I talked to Jeanette Fennell. She founded KidsInCars.org, a nonprofit safety group that tries to raise public awareness to the dangers of leaving kids in hot cars. It pushed for legislation to be introduced this past September. It calls for new technology on motor vehicles. Like warning signals that let you know you've left your lights on or left your keys in the ignition, there would be a signal alerting parents that their child is still in the car. Fennell said that, going in, she was extremely concerned about the ramifications of Harris's trial. And she continues to be concerned now that it's over.
6: Well, of course, You know, we are devastated no matter um, what the circumstances are any time a child loses their life in this manner. And we need to be clear that kidsandcars.org is, you know, we are not lawyers, and we certainly were not on the jury. But we did follow this case very, very closely. And, you know, from the get-go, we felt it was going to be difficult, if not maybe even impossible, that he would get a chance at a fair trial. Um, There was so much misinformation that was put out, and not only in Georgia, but on a national basis.
1: What are her thoughts on the verdict?
6: We've really had two different reactions um, that could have come out of this. The first one is, if he's found guilty, then he becomes the poster child. Anytime this happens, anywhere, people will immediately say, oh yeah, they left their child on purpose, just like that guy who was sexting, rather you know, than the really wonderful parents who sometimes make the worst mistake of their lives. The fact that people um, across America are thinking of this as a criminal issue, that means, oh, this would never happen to me. But that's the biggest mistake anyone can make is not thinking it can happen to them because then they won't put the proactive safety measures in place to make sure it doesn't happen. Just saying, this could never happen to me, is not, not going to save their children.
1: From the beginning of this trial, I worked hard to bring you a podcast that took a deep dive into the hot car murder case. And while in Brunswick, I recorded each episode in a makeshift studio in the closet of our rented condo. Believe me. When I started out as a print journalist more than 30 years ago, there was no way anyone could have convinced me something like this would ever happen. But I've greatly enjoyed bringing Season 2 of Breakdown to you, and I hope you've enjoyed it as well. I'm very thankful to my newspaper, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, for giving me this opportunity. And if you'd like for us to continue on to Season 3, please let us hear from you. But most important, thank you so very much for listening.
4: Before I discharge you, I'd like to say to you that you've seen, in my opinion, very good trial. Work. The lawyers have done an outstanding job in representing Mr. Harris and making sure that not only were his rights um, protected. And you know, sometimes we get a little jaded about rights, but rights matter because they define us as a, as a society. And. Um, If, heaven forbid, we ever find ourselves in a circumstance or our family in a circumstance, we want to make sure we live in a society where um, those rights protected to us are there for us. It's an equalizer. It makes us all equal under the law. And that's one of the hallmarks of American society. Y'all have been a true pleasure to work with. You showed up on time, you've worked really hard, you've been attentive, all the things that I would say A plus plus jurors do. You all did. And I absolutely appreciate that very much. It's made it so much easier on all of us. I'm gonna excuse you to your jury room. Y'all take your time to decompress. So if you'll step out and we'll step back to see you in a moment and let you know what the is. All right, the jury lower.
0: please. Please watch yourself going down.
4: This court stands in recess. Season two of Breakdown, Death in a Hot Car, Mistake or Murder, is a production of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The story is reported and told by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallex. Audio production by Chris Basta of Bare Knuckles Creative. The music for Breakdown was composed and performed by Bo Emerson, Chris Nicholson, and Chris Basta. Special thanks to Burt Roten, Ross Cabot, Chris Nicholson, and Buddy Hall.